You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Oh, it's good to be with you on Kevin Brown's birthday. I'm so glad he's finally turning 30. We can say we have an adult president now. Hey, listen, before I begin, I want to say that I found myself in a lot of conversations lately with people who are just discouraged, discouraged about a lot of things, actually. I'm going to talk a little bit about discouragement, but I'm also going to kind of put it in the context of thinking about struggles in the wilderness and God's faithfulness to meet us in very, very difficult places. Didn't think I would start this way, but I want to begin with telling you, confessing that I spend entirely too much time on Spotify. You know, my little bar graph shows me that if I'm doing a lot of social media, it's usually Spotify is up here and the rest of the stuff is kind of down here. So I I am an avid music lover. I listen to all kinds of music. And the other night I was listening to a song by the band Dawes. Any Dawes fans? The few, we happy few. Well, the Dawes music reminds me a lot of the sound and the vibe of many bands who hail from, in one way or another, from that Laurel Canyon area in California. I don't know, these are older names, but they live on. Joni Mitchell, David Crosby, Stephen Stills, Graham Nash, Neil Young, better known as Crosby, Stills, Nash, and sometimes Young. Chris Hillman, Roger McGuinn from The Birds, The Mamas and the Papas, the incomparable, incomparable, wonderful singer-songwriter Carol King. The Eagles, Richie Ferrey from Buffalo Springfield. I don't know what was going on in Laurel Canyon, California, but that's a pretty impressive group of people. So Dawes sort of revives this kind of sound. It's kind of a folk rock, folk indie kind of sound. The other night I was listening to a song called All Your Favorite Bands. Thank you, Mom. Yeah. (laughs) All your favorite bands. It's a fairly melancholic song, actually, but it's also encouraging in its own kind of muted way. And if I were really courageous, I would sing, but I will not do that this morning. But I'm going to read, at least somewhat lyrically, a couple of verses from the song. Late night drives and hot French fries and friends around the country from Charlottesville to good old Santa Fe. I'm just about ready to break into song any second here. When I think of you, you still got on that hat that says, let's party. I hope that thing is never thrown away. I hope that life without a chaperone is what you thought it'd be. I hope the world sees the same person that you've always been to me. A little later in the song we read, or we sing, I hope your brother's El Camino runs forever. I don't know if you appreciate how ugly El Caminos actually were. They were kind of a car that wanted to be a pickup truck. This strange, but I hope your brother's El Camino runs forever. And then the chorus, the last line of the chorus, may your favorite bands, and may all your favorite bands stay together. So let me be very clear. I don't think this would be a very good choice for a class hymn. But the song speaks to me about some familiar things of the past. I remember late night drives, and I remember probably too many french fries. And it wasn't an El Camino, but it was my friend's first generation Datsun, now Nissan 280Z. And let me tell you, young people, that car back in the day was one sweet ride, man. (laughs) Datsun 280Z, it was black and gold. Oh, it was really cool. 
Another friend of mine drove to high school every day in a red Cadillac Eldorado. Man, oh man, you've gotta have some chops to get into a red Cadillac Eldorado and come to high school. Red Cadillac Eldorado convertible with white leather seats and spoke wheels. And this is back when Cadillacs were, were sorta of cool. Now they've been trying to make a comeback for about 50 years, but anyway, they were, they were cool back then. So the Dawes song is about how things largely lost to the past linger in our memory. The song wants us to remember, but it's the chorus that kind of hangs with me a little bit. It's a sort of secular benediction. May all your favorite bands stay together. I still say this sort of stuff to friends, you know, mostly for fun, of course, but it speaks to some kind of something in us that longs for permanence in a world of change. May all your favorite bands stay together. The trouble is our favorite bands won't stay together, certainly not forever. Mick Jagger and Keith Richards from the Rolling Stones will be 80 this year. May all your favorite bands stay together. Again, I started to think about why I resonated with that benediction. I really think that I do because I've just seen a lot of change. I've been here for a long time and I've seen a lot of change here and I've seen a lot of change in students' lives. I've seen people go through joy and sorrow and suffering and pain and loss and grief. In a Christian context, of course, benedictions bestow blessing, typically at the end of a worship service. You know how this works, right? The pastor will stand before you and before the congregation and pray God's blessings over the people. We'll pray God's presence, his goodness, his love, his faithfulness. I have a pastor friend who told me that praying the benediction is the most significant moment in Christian worship. I think that's right. I think that's almost right for me. It's that moment when the congregation is prayerfully sent out into the world, and you know, that world that is both beautiful and ugly at the same time, and joyous and sorrowful at the same time. There's kind of an urgency to it when you say a benediction, a weightiness, an ultimate concern, because he, that pastor, said he can't guarantee with absolute clarity or certainty that he will gather again with this congregation. Circumstances change, friends move away, COVID hits. Life is full of these changes and contingencies. So he sends them off with a blessing full of promise and hope. One problem is that the benediction comes late in the service. And by that point, all too often, we're ready to grab our stuff, head to the door to attend to whatever's next with our head down and our phones out. And I'm as guilty as anybody in here. We're stressed. We are forgetful. We are impatient. And I'm chief sinner here too. We're distracted even to the point of discouragement. Sometimes our discouragement is momentary or short-lived, other times it lingers. And I feel like for some of us, it's been lingering a good bit. And it can linger long enough to become a general description of life, certainly long enough to become the weather of our inner world. I read in my class this line the other day from class, nothing, writes Samuel Johnson, is more common than to call our own condition the condition of life. The spirit of discouragement comes upon us in big moments and small. It comes on us suddenly at the hearing of bad news. And some of us have gotten bad news lately. We failed to get that job, that internship, that promotion, that bit of affirmation we're looking for. But more often than not, it seems, rather than coming on suddenly, discouragement kind of creeps into our lives kind of incrementally, one small discouraging thing after another. Until we, are, we feel like we're at sea with it and not at all sure how we drifted so far away. And we're definitely not sure how to get home. So why the Dawes song is a prelude to my message? Well, I think I latched onto its attempt, however limited and incomplete it is, to encourage people on their journey, to help people face the difficulties that you face. 
and partly by recalling the stories that we find ourselves a part of, or maybe used to find ourselves a part of. The song is about how we attempt to hold on to what is lost in time's rush, and I think you're old enough to start really feeling that. Time's going pretty quickly, am I right? Seems to go quicker all the time. We reach into the past because change can be really, really hard. So hard, in fact, that we sometimes want our old life back. Even if our old life was miserable, even when we know that's not the path that God wants us to follow, we would rather have the familiar misery than whatever comes next that we don't know anything about. I am a long way from late night drives in Joe's 280Z. You know, the Dawes song, though, did a weird thing. I was listening to it the other night, and it sent me back to thinking about what my favorite benediction is in Scripture. And even my attempt to reach back and find it was kind of, it kind of implicated me a little bit because I went back to the book of Numbers, chapter 6, where it's located, and I kind of reached back for it, and I wanted to read it. I just needed to hear its deeply encouraging rhythms, its good word. But as I did that, I realized that I was looking past a little too swiftly the narrative in which it's placed. And if you had asked me a year ago, would you ever talk about the book of Numbers in chapel? I would have thought, you're nuts, man. The book of Numbers? When's the last time you read the book of Numbers? Maybe in your Old Testament class? So I ended up getting caught in the best possible way in that wilderness that we read about in the book of Numbers. But before I get into just a few thoughts about the book of Numbers and the way in which it just sort of exposed me and challenged me and sort of made me think about it according to its work on me, I want you to hear this wonderful benediction. And you've heard this before. In fact, the thing is, it's so familiar to you and to me that sometimes we don't hear it. So I think to situate it in the book of Numbers again is to hear it again afresh in a particularly powerful way. But you know how this goes. It's beautiful, the priestly blessing. And if you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this. Even if you are at a low point, even if you don't want to be here this morning, it's like, ah, man, I listened to this guy all week. I'm just going to tune him out. I pay my price Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. But if you don't hear anything else I say, please hear this. And no matter where you are and what you're going through, no matter how far you might have wandered into the wilderness, no matter how hard you are struggling to find your way back out, I want you to know that God sees you and God wants to bless you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. I love hearing that. I usually sit way back there and when somebody speaks that benediction, it just moves me. So we find echoes of this prayer throughout Scripture. In, in Psalm 4, let the light of your face shine on us, Lord. Again, in Psalm 67, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Malachi 1.9, now implore the favor of God that he may be gracious to us as the Lord of hosts. As you know, the book of Numbers explores the trials and tests of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. In that slivered, that slivered and strange space between God's revelation on Mount Sinai, a big event. Can we say that? A really big event. And the border, the threshold of the promised land. To step into the book of Numbers is to, is to wander around a little bit in that moment. That moment between God's revelation to Moses, where God spoke to Moses face to face, and God's promise of the promised land. 
So it's a strange wedge of a place, an in-between place, interspersed between the narrative of wilderness wanderings are dense, very dense, I might add, passages about tribal organization, ancestry, law, justice. This is like some trekking in some deep snow to read through some of those chapters. But even these chapters, we see something of the sense of God's extraordinary plans for his people, extraordinary plans and purposes for the people of the covenant. The gift of being called the people of God. The gift of being called the people of God. But the story is full of really, really hard things. Really hard things. The wanderings in the wilderness of Moses and the Israelites are stories of exposure, of sort of preparing to live before God, as Eugene Peterson says, just totally exposed and prepared to kind of face God. And all of the hundreds of ways we've decided not to do that. This exposure entails coming to terms with just those kinds of problems. Throughout the book of Numbers, the Israelites fall into this sort of relentless grumbling. And this is where I started to kind of feel challenged. I don't necessarily think about myself as a grumbler, but wow, maybe that's my first mistake. Grumbling and complaining, suffering weak compromises, petty disagreements, and oh this, absolutely epic forgetfulness. Absolutely epic forgetfulness. We confront how God's people often hide their mixed motivations. Really subtle explorations of this in the book of Numbers. How we hide mixed motivations, how we find our way cleverly, I might add, to all sorts of self-justifications for just about any kind of action we undertake. And grasps for power and control. Oh, and this, and the problem of fear. I don't know what's ahead. And I don't think I want to trust you enough, God, to know that it's going to be okay. So I think what I want to do is I want to go back and find my familiar signposts and reference points, even if it means living way beneath the privilege of your calling. And I just was reading this going, wow, I'm just going to let that kind of work on me for a while. You remember every one of these stories within the larger story, and I, and I just kind of, a few, a, a small hand few just kind of struck me. How about Miriam and Aaron's criticism of Moses' marriage to a Cushite woman in Numbers 12, which seems little more than a cover for jealousy, a jealousy that has to do with Moses' divine call to be the mediator of God's presence. I think anybody in any church or Christian university needs to live in some of these examples for a while because we are not immune at all to being angling for, griping about, jealous about someone's place before God. The Israelites' outrageous refusal to enter the promised land. Numbers 14, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in the wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Can't you hear yourself saying that? Why has God brought me to this place? I thought he had something special for us. We hear grumbling in the extreme, even to the point of outright rebellion against Moses and his leadership. As in Numbers chapter 16, Moses sent Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, but they said, we will not come. It's too little that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you must also lord it over us. Do you hear the bitter tone? What's even more striking is that Dathan and Abiram describe their life of slavery in Egypt as a land flowing with milk and honey. Like, give me that again. 
because whatever this is, is not working for me. And that may have everything to do with how, in whatever way, they found some kind of convenient place to position themselves back in Egypt. Give me that, because I don't want to follow you anymore. The story just squeezes us a bit. How often do we prefer our past, even its misery to God's promising future? That question just kind of kept gnawing at me. How often do we exchange embracing his promise for grabbing more power and control, securing status, shoring up our rank, getting what we think we deserve? Where are we in the pecking order after all? I mean, doesn't anybody understand how important I am? And we don't say these things necessarily outright, but man, we hide them in our hearts. And things just get worse for Dathan and Abiram, along with the priestly Korah, the instigator of the rebellion and his whole household. We, they, they suffer God's wrath. That's a tough part of the book of Numbers. We read, the earth opened and swallowed them up. That was pretty decisive. But you know, I have no words to describe how heartbreaking and bittersweet it must have been for Joshua and Caleb, who yielded to God's word and trusted his promises to watch a whole unbelieving Exodus generation die for failing to trust the Lord. I think I've always kind of missed that in this story. How easy would have that been? And while we also remember Moses' inspirational faithfulness, and listen, folks, I am not at all used to in any way criticizing Moses. But while we remember Moses' inspirational faithfulness and his relentless intercessory prayer for God's people in the wilderness journey, his role as mediator between God and his people, we also confront a moment of his uncharacteristic failure, as in Numbers 20. And recall, if you would, Exodus 17, where Moses strikes the rock to access water so that his people could drink, where he and Aaron, in order to exert authority in the Lord, this, this episode in Numbers, over rebels and complainers and grumblers, twice strikes the rock to bring water forth for the people again. What I just find so fascinating is that I, I knew this scene was coming, I knew this episode was coming, I remember the one in Exodus, and it's almost like the narrative sort of positions you in such a way as to sort of fall into the problem that Moses himself experienced. And it goes something like this, hey, I've been doing this for a while, and you know God has given me a lot of authority, and I'm, I'm a mediator for him, and I'm sick and tired of this complaining, people, you rebels and complainers and grumblers. Listen, and this is what, this is what we read in Scripture, in, X, in, in Numbers 20. Listen, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? The question sounds tense. Because of Moses' grasping for power and control in a very uncharacteristic moment, out of the rock the water came abundantly, a miracle indeed of God's provision for sure. And God's provision is everywhere in the book of Numbers. It is. But in this case, Moses and Aaron seem to take credit for that miracle of provision themselves. And then I thought to myself, even as I was putting this thing together, and listen, please don't think I'm so delusional that in any possible world I am like Moses. But even putting this message together, I thought to myself, am I up here beating a rock in my own strength? out of my own desire to kind of control the moment? Or am I actually up here trying to yield to God's word? That's not a bad thing for me to ask myself pretty much every minute of every day, but certainly in this moment. Well, this disgruntled congregation got their drink, but they didn't realize that they were drowning in disobedience. Psalm 106 interprets Moses' actions as angry and bitter. They angered the Lord at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account, for they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke words that were rash. 
So the book of Numbers is a narrative about the trials and tribulations of God's people in the wilderness, but it also provides a picture of God's abiding presence. Don't miss that, which sometimes we do when we're struggling and suffering. We don't see how God is actually trying to reach us, how he is actually trying to provide for us, how he is actually providing for us, but we are too blind to see it. God's abiding presence, his daily guidance, and the mysterious rhythms of a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. This is a powerful reminder to the church and to us that in those rhythms, which no one could really predict very easily, we're reminded that God is the one who leads. We're the ones who follow. That seems like basic faith 101. But these folks, and how about these folks, get that turned around sometimes. We forget that God does the leading, and we do the following. For all its difficult moments, the book of Numbers turns our attention to God who blesses and keeps and shines and lifts up and extends grace and gives peace. This priestly benediction in number six takes on a very new significance when you stop to consider that God sees us in our very, very most difficult moments at the tent of meeting, the tabernacle in the wilderness. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Well, some of us, I know, and this is kind of why I started the way I started this morning. Some of us, I know, feel discouraged this morning, anxious, fearful, untrusting. I suspect some of us even feel the allure of settling into the known instead of trusting God on into the unknown, into the future to which he is calling you, trusting our path more than God's promise. I mean, I have to confess that out of fear sometimes and out of a desire for comfort, we just have this kind of tendency to cling to idols because they sort of give us comfort in the particular way that we want to be comforted, which basically means that we're just reminded of ourselves. That's how idolatry more or less works. Well, this benediction in number six makes us alive to the fact that God's blessings are woven into the whole story of redemption. It enfolds us. Even this morning, we are a people who live under perpetual benediction. And I'm going to be brief, but I want to get a little bit more personal in the couple of minutes that I have remaining. When I left for my first year of college, I didn't attend Asbury. I ran headlong into the wilderness. I was lost and disoriented and relentlessly unbelieving and disobedient. I made a habit out of bad decisions. Spring break that year, I decided to go fishing with a high school friend, not the friend with the 280Z. This was a Christian friend. And I don't know if you visited upstate New York in March, but I got to tell you, the weather's just kind of bleak. And I was at the lowest point in my life, but we decided to go fishing anyway. Over the three days, we caught one fish on the first day. That night, the first night, we had this dinner, brown trout, and not a very big one at that, and Cheerios, dried Cheerios, bread and fish. Bread and fish, the symbolism is not lost on me now, but it was then, I was absolutely a mess. But that night, the cabin became the tabernacle in the wilderness. As my faithful friend witnessed to Christ as the way and the truth and the life, the Spirit came. And the good news is this, that in Christ we have our high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A ministry of the sanctuary and the true tent, the true tent that the Lord and not any mortal has set up. I've had seasons of wilderness since, even moments this past year. Many of you have had them too. Maybe some of you are right there in that weird space. I've often thought, you know, coming off of February and the high of that kind of experience, I wonder if sometimes it gets a little hard right now. So maybe that's where you find yourself, wondering where in the world God is in the midst of all this mess. Well, 
Predictably, probably, you thought that I would want to end with a benediction, and I do. But I want you to hear these words from the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians. And if you would do me this favor, open your heart to this apostle who wants you to understand above all that you live as the people of God under perpetual benediction, that you are enfolded in this beautiful reality. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through the Spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than we can ask or imagine. To him, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.